0: I want us to become brothers again like we used to be and for us to find ourselves and bond with each other. Can we agree to that? Opinions vary. Welcome to Three Brothers Filmcast, a monthly roundtable podcast where the brothers behind Three Brothers Film discuss chosen movies as well as broader topics in film culture. As always, thanks so much for listening. If you've enjoyed our discussions, please think about dropping a five-star rating or review or recommending us to your family and friends. We're always looking to expand our audience and bring more people into the conversation. And five-star reviews help new listeners find us as we continue to carve out a niche for quality, nuanced conversations about movies. I'm Anton Bergstrom, and I'm here with my brothers... Anders. And Aaron. My last name is the same as my brother's. And this week, we're talking about Paul Schrader's latest film, The Card Counter, starring Oscar Isaac, Tiffany Haddish, Ty Sheridan, and Willem Dafoe.
1: Okay, ramblers, let's get rambling. There is a weight a man can accrue.
0: This is where all the good
1: stuff happens. The weight created by his past actions. It is a weight which can never be removed.
0: All in. Paul Schrader is probably best known for his collaborations with Martin Scorsese. Schrader famously wrote the screenplays for both Taxi Driver and Raging Bull, widely considered among Scorsese's finest works. But he also wrote the screenplays for two other Scorsese-directed films, 1988's The Last Temptation of Christ and 1999's Bringing Out the Dead. Schrader, who got his start in film criticism, made his first major contribution to cinema with his seminal study, Transcendental Style and Film, Ozu, Brazant, Dreyer, first published in 1972 and updated with a new introduction in 2018. Schrader's interested in what he terms slow cinema, Films that are sparse, unadorned, and avoid the kind of self-reflexivity that draws attention to the filmmaker, all in an effort to convey spiritual concerns. And the transcendental style impacts the films he has directed, particularly his most recent efforts, 2017's First Reformed and The Card Counter, the subject of this podcast. Similarly, Schrader's admiration for arthouse filmmakers such as Robert Bresson, especially his Diary of a Country Priest, Leave notable influences on many of his works. For example, voiceover narration using the diegetic device of the protagonist writing a journal often frames Schrader's films, from the screenplay to Taxi Driver to his first reformed in the Card Counter. Schrader's career is marked by singular preoccupations beyond his critical interests and in artistic influences. I've already mentioned slow cinema, but there is also his typically plain visual style and stories centered around troubled male protagonists inwardly tortured and grappling with guilt while seeking redemption. In terms of quality, his oeuvre is marked by both masterworks and duds, as well as seemingly director-for-hire films. First Reformed, which the brothers much admired and Anders reviewed for the site, was widely lauded as a late-career masterwork and thematic review of many of Schrader's prior interests. Most importantly, It was the self-conscious application of the characteristics Schrader identified as the transcendental style. The card counter continues Schrader's late career return to prominence. Oscar Isaac plays William Tell, a loner gambler and card counter, whose existence involves traveling the U.S. winning low-stakes card games at casinos in order to make a living. William chooses to stay at motels and carries suitcases full of bedsheets, which he carefully covers the room's furniture with meeting a troubled young man, Kirk, played by Ty Sheridan, and a poker stable manager, Lalinda, played by Tiffany Haddish, William has to decide to return to the traumas of his past in order to possibly turn the boy's life around, and perhaps save himself in the bargain. We can get into the plot specifics more later on, but I have to say, I was blown away by the film, and a portion of that impact was having no idea what William's secret past was, until I saw the movie. I hadn't watched the trailer, I hadn't read any reviews. My guess is, if you're listening to this podcast, you already know enough about the movie, but those of you who are heavily spoiler-concerned folk might want to revisit our discussion once you've seen the film. For most of us though, let's dig into the dark details of this slowly gripping and deeply unsettling revenge drama. I've already laid my cards out, saying I was caught up in the slow-burning drama and character study. So, why don't we start by revealing our hands, brothers, before we get into more analysis. Anders, uh, did you like the card counter? In your mind, how does it compare to Schrader's other works, particularly First Reformed, which you're a big champion of?
2: I liked the card counter quite a bit. I How it compares to First Reformed, I would say favorably. Maybe I think I probably still like First Reformed more, but I've I've sat with it for a number of years and written quite a bit about it. But the yeah. card counter, no, was, it was good. I think it, it, it shows that he's continued his auteurist streak here where he's like able to write and direct his own films. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that he's found uh, a way in his revisiting of Transcendental Style to actually gain a kind of authorial control with low budgets, relatively minimalist, uh, you know, camera work, uh, sets... Small limited cast, uh, you know. It's interesting. I think Card Counter filmed it mostly during COVID, and you know mm-hmm. you can you can tell that 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 may have been a factor in the simplicity. But I think a lot of it is just the control then and the ability to work with the actors one on one. He gets great performances out of his actors. Um, and of course, the Card Counter. Even if nobody told me there was a Paul Schrader movie, I would have been able to at least see the parallels to those. As we said, those sort of. Troubled uh, male protagonists. Um, what what did we call it, Aaron? God's uh, only man. God's only man. That's really yeah, what it is. Um, it, it fits really well into that, and and so it also like first reformed so
0: films like Taxi Driver. Taxi like, Driver,
2: like first reformed. Yeah, like hardcore even maybe. Um, Last Temptation. Last Temptation. Yeah, <laughs> bringing out the dead. <laughs> I yeah, mean, yeah. There, you know, the the characters in Schrader's films often have a. A desire though for community in some way yeah. or, or they don't read in the case of like the card counter will bill tell has kind of a he's not he's unsure but then he at a certain point in the film he makes a decision to involve himself in the in Kirk's life and and, and in uh, Linda's stable and I think that is really the, the what sets everything in motion
0: I thought there was an interesting point about the adoption of the transcendental style which he's been writing and thinking about his whole career but it also as a means to sort of produce these, um, these sort of deeply authorial films, but also within sort of like a modest production budget, because they're they're purposely um, not stylish, focused usually on a handful of characters, dialogue heavy, um, or just like you know sort of character heavy. So it's it's an interesting thing because like this the card counter is probably one of the like the most notable. Kind of like artistic movies of the year, like that was like oh like it's like the new Paul Schrader, and that's it's cool that he's sort of at this stage now again, where it's it's kind of a an event for film buffs. Mm-hmm. Aaron, what do you think? Uh, did you did you like it? So yeah, I thought the Card
1: Counter was exceptional. Honestly, on first visit, I probably liked it more than I liked First Reformed the first time I saw it. Partially because First Reformed was so familiar, in a sense, not only to Schrader's past work like writing. It had that kind of um, familiar male protagonist. Which this has as well, obviously, but I think it's plot-wise. It's so clearly Diary of your Country Priest mixed with Winter Light. And so however much I connected with it, it t- really took the second viewing for it to really hit home in, in the spiritual themes and the more like um, existential aspects of it. With this film, I went in blind only knowing that it's Paul Schrader's new movie, starring Oscar Isaac, and that it was supposed to be quite dark. <laughs> That's really it. So it is a dark movie, yeah. Definitely. I found it great because it plays as this kind of revenge narrative mixed with a penitence film, and it's very understated, very utilitarian in its style. I wouldn't say it's not stylish. I think it's stylized, but it's stylized in a way that we're not cued to look for in the modern style of films yes. right now, where it's not it's not about parallel lines, it's not about kind of fluid camera work, it's not about monochromatic sets, even though there is the the white... sheets and little flourishes like that it's more about patient camera work it's about really picking when the camera moves it's about distance how close the camera is to the character how far they are the choice of when to do a close-up is very important in this kind of film and so it's the style is unassuming but the narrative i actually thought was really unassuming because like i did not realize that it had to do with abu Ghraib. I did yeah, not realize it had either. to do with torture. I did not realize that it would go down this kind of tact of Kirk bringing Tell into this revenge plot to get back at Willem Defoe's Major John Gordo. And even though that's not the main thing that drives the film, I just, I think it's because the presentation is so much like an art film. It sneaks up on you how dark and troubling the revenge aspects are.
0: Absolutely. So there's a couple things there, I, I think, really good points that I just want to unpack. Or we can unpack together. Mm-hmm. So um, one, in terms of style, you know, I think it's worth pointing out that the plain style is a style, and we often think that it's not. Like, as we think of it as like a, a neutral, but right, like it's those, a choice, right? It's a choice,
2: and that choice may be dictated by a desire for control or the conditions of shooting. But you know, just like with the, in the transcendental films that Schrader admired so much and that he saw so much value in. It um, it is though an attempt to focus. As it, I think, I really liked your descriptions of the 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 camera work and filmmaking, Aaron. Um, the your, you know the, what you focus in on, the 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 you know how far away from objects and faces you are. That kind of stuff is really really important to the, the transcendental films. You know, shots of shots of hands in a personal yeah. kind of way. <laughs> right? Yeah,
0: and those are so prominent, right? Like the the final shot, which a lot of people are talking about. The the fingers sort of trying to touch through the glass. Um, again, pointing to this theme that you, we've already talked about of lonely man, but who actually does want human connection. And I'm also thinking about uh, to connect to sort of the, the torture and sort of the larger political aspect of the film. There's a really great close-up, um, either a dolly in or a zoom in. It moves towards um, William while he's sleeping and he's like troubled and then goes up to his head and then we get... Right, like the, the cameras conveying that we're going into his headspace yeah. and we're seeing what he's seen and what he's bothered. His by. memories of, Iraq and then or... then we get the moment. Speaking about style, of like the most sort of uh, visually stylish, it's right like one long take um, using maybe multiple fishbowl lenses to arc everything like, both outward on either yeah. edge. Yeah, I think um, And then like there's like crazy. You know, like metal music playing super loud, and it just moves yeah. throughout the whole base, whether it's Abu Ghraib or you know, another Middle Eastern uh secret prison, you know. And then we're seeing all the horrible stuff going it's, on, and like that, the, the the transition there, the way that's executed, and then the just using the the intense sort of lens work versus everything that's come before oh was yeah. like I thought a great stylistic you mm-hmm. or use of right stylistic technique, but it also
1: you it's it's like um. In some respects, the movie stylistically and structurally is set up like a poker game, in that it lays its card out, and then it, because of what you assume is coming on the flop, you're not, you know, aware of the surprise that comes on the turn with the visual style, right? You're cued for this low-key art thing, and then you get the flashback scenes, and they're kind of wild. Yeah, yeah.
2: They're 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 truly nightmares, though. I think it's like, yeah. I was actually like, I. Unlike you, I had seen the trailer, so I knew it had something to do with, like, a war veteran and his, you know, tortured past, but I, even I was unprepared for, like, how visceral I found those scenes of the, the torture yeah. prison. Really, really disturbing in a way that I, you know, there's other movies that have attempted to convey similar things. Most recently, earlier this year, The Mauritanian, which I reviewed for a site, which which tries to convey some of the, you know, the horror that its, its main character faces in Guantanamo Bay, but... This, this really, I think, captured, like, the, the metal music, that's part of the torture, right? Like, that was what they played yep. to torture. Uh, Constantly you know, throughout the day, long, so yep. no one You can couldn't sleep, down. you can't, it, it raises your heart rate, these things, you know. The lights um, are bright. The lights are bright. It, you know, there was something, like, in the griminess of it, and the, just the filth, and
0: it's... Right, because these people are covered. Are covered feces. in their own
2: feces, and yep. it's just literally hell, right? Like, it's literally, yeah. like, a, almost a medieval vision of hell.
0: In a lot of it ways. also reminds me a lot of uh, Apocalypse Now. Some of the mm-hmm. shots there, where it's also it's like a, a microcosm, because there's something uh, nightmarish and dreamlike. Because he's trying and mm-hmm. surreal. Because he's trying to bring everything. Like there's all the different tortures that, if you've ever read about the stories of Abu Ghraib and stuff, they're all contained within that shot. Whether it's like. Yeah you know, someone not being allowed to sleep, the metal music, dogs barking at people, sexual uh, humiliation, waterboarding, all that stuff's going on and you're getting it all just like there's some of the shots when they get off the boat in Apocalypse Now um, and it's moving around and it's just showing like a panorama of all these things we associate with Vietnam.
2: So it's interesting. One of the weird... I'm trying hard to try to figure out why those scenes were so viscerally disturbing to me and and grip me in a way. There's something about them that seems really like... It echoes sort of images of like horrific situations I've seen in other films. Like I actually was reminded weird. There's a weird connection, but the documentary, uh, Wild Wild Country, on the, uh, oh, yeah, you know, Asho and the uh, Bagwan, yeah, I have Rajane- the it, But, you but about it. in the very first episode, there's some footage of a famous film. It was sort of an exploitation film that took footage from one of the ashrams in India when they were in these like uh, sort of struggle sessions where like. People would essentially just go feral and like attack each other and stuff. And I found that really, really disturbing when I watched that documentary. This is the closest in you know, a fiction film that I've ever like gotten recently, at least recently, to something like that. So uh, just a warning to anyone who's, you know, sensitive to those kinds of images, it's, it's something. But it also grapples, it is worth also thinking about the, you know, I don't want to always pull films back to politics, but rather I think Schrader is trying to interrogate the moral, you know, tra- trajectory and outcome and results of something like Abu Ghraib and what I I'll I'll just say what I really found affecting with the film and where it fits with this Schrader's very uh sort of Calvinistic uh view of like sin and atonement is that unlike a lot of other even American films that want to like condemn the excesses of the war on terror or you know litigate you know the torture, and even something like Zerduck 30 and things like that, uh, which are conflicted. And, you know, what you get is, like, it doesn't let Bill off the hook. Like, the film says, you participated in that. You, we are, we, you know, you don't get to just say, oh, you know, Gordo made me do it, or, you know, this was just, you know, we, we were really, you know, trying to, like, do this thing. It says, let's just confront the fact of what happened, and then what is, would it, what would it actually mean to... And live with that in yeah. a real, honest way, and then potentially try to seek some kind of redemption. Uh, well, no, no, from one, that. no one in a Schrader no, film. There's no uh, cheap in the grace there, in Schrader you know. films.
0: No, yeah, absolutely not. But that's,
1: those two kind of sides are personified by by Tell and Kirk, right? And the thing is, which that two Kirk, sides? Sorry, like the idea of pulled towards desiring grace, but also wanting to blame. Yeah. Right. So Kirk, whose father was there, whose father committed suicide in the wake of it and like his domestic life broke down and, and, you know, essentially terrorized his son as a offshoot of what he learned to do at the war. So Kirk's character, he, he, he did not experience that himself. So he has a very like simplistic moral universe in that it's like Gordo made my father do this. Gordo has to pay. Tell understands that Gordo is the man who precipitated this for a lot of individuals like himself or like Kirk's dad, but that it's not about Gordo it's yeah. about all of them and it's about this higher moral responsibility that transcends it so that's that's the kind of you know very protestant very calvinist idea of you have the moral universe kind of swirling around and it's out of your control but the thing that is entirely within your control is your your you know moral reaction to it and so the film is very much a it's not you know it doesn't um necessarily set up Lalinda and Kirk as these push pull the light side and the dark side, but that is almost no. kind of what the the narrative puts out all forward, and it, it doesn't do it in a simplistic way. But she offers him a form of redemption and human connection. Kirk, he tries to push him onto the one path, but it inevitably only leads down the way that Kirk wants to go, and has not really interested in a in a relationship or a community there, because the second that he gives Kirk the ability to be free to fix his problems to go to his mother reconnect with your mother reconnect with his mother it's a thing he constantly says over Mm -hmm. and over to him in the movie it's like i want you to make sure that you don't go down this path but in kirk's mind that decision's already made because he never had to experience the consequences of an action like that in the past so he doesn't you know have that moral understanding that tell does by having lived through hell in a sense but Linda, you know, offers him romance. There's a romantic possibility. There's an opportunity for something a bit more meaningful.
0: I think the film also does an interesting job of structurally tying the hidden, secret, personal um, trauma, guilt, wrongs of William to the larger, like national ones. Because structurally, the film like keeps that as a secret of like what William's past was. Why was he in jail? What did he do? and right like these all and what we found out is that he's part of the right these like these secret you know evil programs that were done during the war on terror so there's an interesting way that he um the film sort of assigns a very like um like there's sort of like the the personal sin but it's linked to like the national sin even though the film's not primarily i will point out right the film's not really operating primarily on sort of like a larger political concern level but it's obviously like I think there's that interesting connection between the two, the way it's structured. Yeah.
2: But that's what I, I think like what I liked about the movie is like, I, it, I'm trying to think of other movies that managed to thread that, uh, you know, back and the forth between individual experience. Cause a lot of films that tend toward the individual experience just want to pretend that like politics is something that's purely driven by individual things and systems. Whereas, but maybe that has to do, I guess maybe that has to do with Schrader's understanding of something like original sin.
0: I, I would think some so. Some sort of too. collective
2: shared experience and, and that can be connected to political and st- any structures of power. That, I think that it's way.
1: also Schrader's generation. Yeah. Because this film does something that a lot of movies about the war on terror, whether it's zero Dark dirty, whether it's the hurt locker, whether it's even some you know, documentaries, what have you, it views it still very much through the personal and the idea of of trauma as a personalized experience, which is a carryover very much from Vietnam War stories. So if you take it back to 70s cinema, you take, you know, obviously there's a connection to Taxi Driver. He's a war vet. He's done with that. But there's I think the more useful thing is something like The Deer Hunter, Mm. which is about these individuals who got into something they didn't realize, did awful things over there, and the transformation of their kind of souls is born out in this kind of epic drama narrative where you, you know, as American cinema very much in the wake of Vietnam War was litigating that war, but through the impacts that it had on American men who served in it.
2: Exactly, as opposed to the impact on the men who did the things and, the, and that impact. That's a, that's a distinction, right? Yeah. And I think that's why the ta- that, that uh, Deer Hunter comparison is a really good one.
0: The other War on Terror film that this film reminds me of is in the Valley of Ela. Oh, um, yes, actually, I, which was I a film that about. I actually really liked when it came out. I've actually never seen and, it. Oh, so I, right, need I need to watch work. it. I need to watch it. And what that film also did was structure a a larger story about sort of the war on terror within a very personal story of right, a father trying to figure out what happened to his son. But also, genre-wise, um, in the Valley of Ela, structured as like it's like a mystery, a crime drama. And yeah. this movie operates as, a, it's not a crime genre or a mystery. It's operating as a revenge flick, but it's actually kind of an anti-revenge flick. But it's not only
1: operating as a revenge flick. That's the thing that makes it so nope. interesting is that it's set up actually in its initial plot concept and it's the way that the structure works, the way that the narrative and set the up, title. And the characters are. Yeah, it's, it's set up as like a, a gambling, I will show you the ropes of how to do this thing movie. Yep. And so it's, interesting in how the topic gambling plays out in so many different thematic avenues within this film right so one thing is that what is he so card counting is a means of equalizing the automatic advantage that the house has has right and all Mm -hmm. gambling and all card games everything everything that's in the casino the house has the advantage always so he's picked himself a profession vocation that is constantly sending them at a disadvantage deliberately so right it's not only a repetitive thing it's not only a thing that passes the time but it's a means of him processing where he's always having to like you know roll the boulder up the hill. it's almost like a purgatorial experience but Sisyphean the other thing task it, it very much is but then the so it, it it's kind of like a processing of guilt through the habit through the ritual yeah so
2: the the casino is like the prison no it is and it's like the prison he's in at the beginning as well
1: well, it's both, but because it's, it's right. very ordered. So there's very no, sterilized. there's it's ordered. There yes. is no
2: clocks or a uh, sense of you're cut off from like external and natural no markers of time. Yeah.
0: But now you have to take that to the the great opening narration. So the whole film's structured right with these, um, uh, Williams writing journal entries, and he that sort of allows him to give the voiceover narration. But it begins with this talk about, you know, um, I found and I always thought I would dislike. I, this isn't the word for word it's like yeah. you know i always thought i dislike incarceration being american but then i found <laughs> out i really liked it um, <laughs> i thought that Trader was really Sine, interesting I think in of, trying
2: to say something there about america but
0: <laughs> yeah well in, in light of all this covid stuff like there's something inherently right this is what i find interesting about the film there's something inherently uh, i think within the american soul that's very like um bristles against the limits and restrictions but then with your connection between prison and then casinos and stuff, what we're seeing is that there's actually, um, but we people make their own prisons, right? You make your own ways to, um, essentially, like limit the scope of the activity around you to control behavior. Um, and there's something right about like behavior control, the kind mm-hmm. of interrogation techniques they're they're operating on.
2: There's kind of a a sh- uh, also a a move between. If I can get, too, I don't want to get too like philosophical theoretical, but there's a move from what they would have, someone like Foucault would have called the disciplinary society to a society of control, a control society. The one is imposed on the outside, the other is uh, internally set up. You know, you're ostensibly free, but you still, uh, you know, con- you act as if you're being, uh, dis- you're sort of disciplined internally in that way. So it's not like a prison per se. I mean, it's not so much focused on those sort of markers of like physical restraint and, uh, you know, order, but rather a mental uh, discipline, a sort of mental prison in that way. This 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 film feels very, like it's dealing with things that we've, we've been looking at in our society and in films a lot, but in a, in a way that's refreshing in terms of its, uh, the way it brings some of these things together. That's what I think.
0: Can I ask you guys about like the revenge side? And then whether you like it, because looking online, um, I know a lot of people, critics, like this film. A lot of regular film goers kind of, like, hate this film. They're like, it's boring. or or But a lot of it's rooted in that the fact that the film doesn't provide the expected satisfaction on a revenge movie level. They're like, what? So, like, we don't really get Gordo the way we want to see him got.
1: Yeah, it's because... so most revenge movies are operating on a dual principle, in one, and it's a very American sense. It's, they want to prove that revenge is wrought against the perpetrator, the person committing revenge as well, the one who's you know, being dealt out the justice, being dealt out the revenge, and that it kind of has like a, a moral both ways. You, know, you dig two graves when you go and do revenge. But the way that the um, you know, exploitation of cinema works is that you have to give the satisfaction, which ultimately undercuts the whole point. This movie doesn't give that because the revenge is not about giving us as a viewer any kind of satisfaction in Gordo because we so aligned with William's understanding of the world that the great travesty of that moment is that he goes down the path which he believes is inevitable at that moment, which is not. Mm -hmm. And so we don't need to see any actual revenge because it's never been built up that we're trying to satisfy something this way. We already understand the means of, of... growing beyond that is the other so like you know it's it's not a conventional revenge movie in the sense of of wanting to deal out justice let you enjoy it and then have a little bit of a a moral quandary at the end of there or even Mm -hmm. like something like Unforgiven which you know he goes on the rampage and it's an indictment of the entire project from the beginning (laughs) that ending of inevitability and it's like well of course it would never ended this way because stories like this net always work that way its interests are far more personal far more insular actually in the sense that's and that's the thing it's it's a movie that's so concerned with the internal which is why something like voiceover which you know you read screenwriting books or you talk it's, it's that one of those things of like never do voiceover it's always bad it's always poorly written it's like well yeah but it it is often Bit poorly done and it is often a crutch to get out exposition or other things that aren't conveyed in an actual storytelling sense but it's extremely useful to tell <laughs> use voiceover in a story that is so much about what's happening inside a man's mind which we see glimpses of what's happening inside his mind in the flashbacks but it is also useful to know
0: yeah in the films that do voiceover well that's always like their most memorable part like if you think about taxi driver or fight club etc like that's like, yeah, some Terrence of the most Malick distinct movies. aspects of them mm-hmm. May 10th. Thank God for the rain, which has helped wash away the garbage and the trash off the sidewalks. I'm working long hours now, six in the afternoon to six in the morning, sometimes even eight in the morning, six days a week, sometimes seven days a week. It's a long hustle, but it keeps me real busy. I can take in three, 350 a week, sometimes even more when I do it off the meter.
1: Kind of to get off the the revenge tactic and back to the casino idea, back to this idea is this movie that you know it teaches you how to count cards really rudimentarily. It teaches. So I'm you interested
0: to... in this because I was having a hard time figuring out what the connection was between the gambling side, the card counting side, and then the other story. So
1: well, I think the one is that it's the the casino. It's the parallels casino and prison that we've talked about before, but the other is that it sets up an expectation in a movie like this that there has some um, thematic interest. Like, the gambling aspect is built partially off of deception. He's either deceiving the dealer in the black hand to show them he's not... To make him think that he's not actually counting cards or he's not taking too much to draw the attention of others or in a poker game is you stare into the soul of the person, other you know, across from you, you have to read them. And it's all about reading them because at the end of the day, the only thing, the only variable you can control is your own reaction to the other people around you. It's not the flop. It's not the hands that are you're mm-hmm. dealt. It's not the things coming out. And so it cues you into this idea of a man with control, right? And it cues you as a viewer into thinking that you understand what the movie is going to do to you, even though in the midst of building up this idea of inevitability, it tells you that it's tricking you, in a sense. Like, it it reminds me very much of David Mamet's House of Games, which is another movie that has aspects of casino stuff and cards, but it's more about um, con artists. And it's a movie that's about telling you how to be a con artist in which you never know whether the whole movie's a con on you and the main Mm. character, and I feel like there's a bit of that here where it's it's set up in such a way that you want to, it wants to suck you into this idea that, well, William's letting me in on it. Therefore, I'm in on it. Therefore, I understand. I'm as smart as the character in the movie, and I know where this story is going, and I know that there's going to be some satisfaction going. But William doesn't actually know. He's not in control. He's a man who's deluded himself into control over something that he grappling so, with deeply.
2: So William does not obey... In real life the same principles that he does as a card counter because he fails to recognize the things that were outside of his control or outside of his control and, and he doesn't walk
0: aren't. away remember he's always er, early on he's always like exactly words, you've got yep. what you yep. wanted walk away the other the other thing i'll point out this just occurred to me now the connection between um poker and then the revenge story is that so if you're playing poker um, say like Texas Hold'em style. At the end, there's a certain scenario where someone can win, and then they don't have to show their cards, mm-hmm. and it's so in super theory. unsatisfying for the rest of the table. But people will do it, and there's something about that at the end of this movie that kind of reminds me of that, where it's like the movie chooses by not showing us like you know yeah, any sort of like them, fight or just... what the scene is. It's like yep, they just like it's slough yeah. those off. I, and I think you there's don't get a see those deeper cards.
1: structural analysis of this movie that ought to be done in terms of blackjack and poker because i think it's very deliberate that schrader is building those things into the way the film doles out information or doesn't
0: what did you guys think about the cast the acting i thought that oscar isaac did a really good job and i also thought he was channeling a little bit of sort of like an early de, de niro the way he holds his face and stuff but i don't know if i'm just reading too no. much into the scorsese it's interesting, uh, it's interesting because i always schrader felt that oscar,
2: it's interesting because i always thought that oscar isaac was more of a young uh, pacino Um, in in terms of his look and his uh, being able to do the quiet uh, stuff. No, he let's be honest, Oscar Isaac is one of those guys for the last decade or so that has made a really great body of work so um, I thought it was interesting also, uh, and again also like Willem Dafoe like as Gordo yeah. you you this, you're, you're, you get what you expect from him. He's you know always good. I thought you know, and and this, the two supporting characters were good. I thought that you know it's interesting to see uh, Tiffany Haddish do a non sort of a comedic role try to make branch out into drama and i know i've seen a couple people being like oh it's not like this is not like the thing that's gonna be like oh wow great comedian doing a a dramatic role but you know what i actually thought there was a warmth there's a warmth to her though that is nice there's a a genuineness to her uh, rapport with oscar isaac which is nice and then ty sheridan i mean he's uh also doing you know a great job and now he's moving into these more like grown-up roles yeah. for them too
0: for them too it's nice to sort of see one like ty sheridan like transitioning into, into older roles and and it's also nice to see like a comedian do a dramatic part but not trying to make it like a thing like it's just like oh, oh yeah. i'm just doing like a regular yeah. part it's not an award-bait role no exactly it's, it's like just I
2: wanted, it's more like i just wanted to do some acting that's not my usual thing and like
1: yeah. chops.
2: Yeah, but I think it was also Schrader, recognizing you know some you know even more unheralded talents, you know in different ways. And,
0: and It does also, sort of make her stand out, in the sense of like she feels like she's from a distinct world from yeah. um, William, and I think the casting helps that.
2: I think that even the uh, the racial dynamic, you know, yeah. uh, adds that especially within America, you know. Yes. But is. she
1: she does have a genuine warmth that is counter to like Ty Sheridan, who is an actor with a lot of even as a young actor in Tree of Life or in Mud, he had a lot of kind of internalized conflict. You could read yep. it on his face. And he reminds me so much of, like, a young Kyle Chandler. It's kind of ridiculous at this yeah, point. Yeah, he does. He has it's that like, the spitting yeah. image of him. But he's, already, but he's
2: already, to me, he's already, like, uh, moving. Like, with stuff like Ready Player One and stuff, he's now, like...
1: He's with the A-list, A-list directors yeah. now and stuff. But the thing with Ty Sheridan, which I find interesting in this movie, is that he, he plays it so aloof. Like, yeah. he's, he's a character, Kirk's a character who's disinterested in William. The character, there, even in the description after reading, um, after seeing the movie I read, and it's like, oh, uh, William Tell takes this young hothead under his wing, and it's like, he's not a hothead. He's actually just kind of like a f- drift, like, he just doesn't, he has this idea in his mind, but he has no means of making it reality, this, like, grand revenge scheme. He's just kind of he, there. He
2: feels like a real character to me, though. He That's does. what I liked about him. He feels like a lot of the young men that I've met. Maybe not a lot, but he's like some, some, yeah, there's this aimlessness, this sense of, uh, but there's a, still a competence to him. Like oh, yeah. he, he's not, he not tracks an him down or anything.
0: Yeah. But the character the also thing. is good for capturing the, um, making bad choices, but not in that sort of like a movie way. Exactly. It's yeah. just that sort of inevitability where like some people seem like they will just do this and you're like, see why? It just turn away. But, like, and the movie does a good job both through the writing and his performance that's sort of capturing that sort of, like, that aggravating sort of, like, um, behavior that's, un- like, someone's unable to change their character. They're on a path and they're just going to do yeah. it.
1: Yeah. you. Yeah, you use the word inevitability towards him, and I think this movie has that kind of dreadful inevitability that I find so satisfying in certain movies in that the narrative resolution is extremely frustrating because it goes against our desires for the characters it's extremely satisfying in the sense that it seems to fulfill what is exactly the correct this like actions that the characters would take but that it doesn't do it in a really obvious manner you know so the movies that i find most satisfying that are kind of quote-unquote you know conventional movie structures is ones that come together in that final moment in a way that you're like, of course that's the way it has to end, but I didn't see it coming until this moment, but now it yep. seems obvious.
2: Mm-hmm. There's a unity, even yeah. if it feels like a surprise.
1: But in a movie like this, it's, it's, you know, it's inevitable, but it's dreadful because it's like a weight in your stomach. You're like, of course, but that hurts because you're so
0: invested. It's also, um, you mentioned dread, and I this movie has um, a really potent atmosphere and mood to it. And it's the kind of movie where it's, like, if you let yourself get into it, it's mindset. It gets dark, but it's also, like, it's an intense experience. But it's not, like, a in-your-face kind of movie. So you actually just have to sort of, like, let yourself get into it. And I think the music and the score contributes to that too, a lot. The weird sort of, like, breathing that you hear pulsating yep. throughout the film, which is really yeah. disturbing and unsettling.
1: I think that's just one brief comment with that which is that playing into the transcendental style playing into the kind of new Schrader you know that first reformed birth and the you know new respected kind of director who's back on the scene finally making movies his way and in response to typical movies nowadays which we can enjoy them we've reviewed a lot of them on the show but that there's often kind of a tonal inconsistency this movie's tone from the first shot is like it's just set and it never wavers in that tone. And even like First Reformed, which has the one scene which some people broke it with them, the like magical yeah. flying yeah. scene where they're laying on the floor. This movie has a moment somewhat like that where they go together to the light show. But it doesn't kind of break over into that realm. It still keeps the tone just absolutely within this contained world of the film that never wavers. And you're like, I'm, I'm watching a movie made by a person who knows exactly what they want with every aspect this of the movie.
2: It's a poetic film. In the sense of that unity of tone, theme, you know, skill, technique. I, I really, yeah. You know, yeah, I, po- I think that I'm like... It's poetic
0: in the sense of also that it's not wo- about... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, like po- poetry, the very words themselves matter, not the merely the content we are exactly. trying to deliver. Yeah. And a film like this, um, it's not just about delivering a story or delivering a character. It's actually like each component is the point.
2: This is the kind of film that you could like study to understand the art of what direction does. Yes, which is interesting because Schrader has had made his name as a screenwriter, and he is very strong as a screenwriter in terms of putting his print on a film. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, but I would still say that those films that he wrote for Scorsese are still primarily Scorsese films, and there is something about a Schrader film that is unique to
0: him.
1: The energy is so contained. I mean, I've only seen a couple, but yeah.
0: Well, so maybe um, I think the last thing, uh, like, I think this is a good segue into talking a little bit about some of Trader's other works. But I did want to point out, I I really liked uh, the score. It's by Robert Levin Bean of Black Rebel Motorcycle Club, and it has a really intense sort of like ominous bass throughout. Um, it's not songs; it's like a it is like a score, and the the motifs are repeated. Uh, did you guys like when I was watching it? The Movie, I was like, I was like, whose voice is this? Who's like singing yeah. here? No, I've Which actually already so listened familiar. to it on Spotify. <laughs> I think Aaron pointed out you texted, we did, out, it. Yeah. Text we didn't we did like,
2: figure it out to the end of the film, but yeah, I've already listened to the, the score a couple times on Spotify. It really does have, uh, it draws you into its world, you know. All I, it's interesting that it's, it's a Black Robin Motorcycle Club, it has that kind of like sort of gritty rock kind of like black but also the they're always feel.
0: tinged also with like a gospel with thing gospel
2: yeah. exactly the sort of religious tinge but it's also almost ambient music but with yeah. electronica which is kind of cool
0: yeah ambient but not electronic yeah that's a good Well, way to no describing. it's
1: ambient but not disembodied it keeps the person centered yeah. within the, the tone and
2: hence the breathing and the the all that on the soundtrack yeah really uh, i i would imagine this is gonna this i have a hard time imagining this is isn't gonna be one of the top films of the year for me
0: yeah, right now probably the best film I've seen this year, like new release. Um,
2: I'd have to rewatch this and Annette. I mean, Annette, I was really blown away by Annette is a, like it's big and maximal in a way that the card counter is small and contained. Right? I'm sure it your costs, statements like, 10 on times Annette,
0: which must be your film of the decade, almost. <laughs>
2: well, there's, it's only been two years.
0: So <laughs> <laughs> sure, actually, the decade is young. And am I trying to justify what we did? No. Nothing,
2: nothing can justify what we did.
0: Your father understood that. If you were there, you could understand. Otherwise, there's no understanding. So uh, why don't I just thought before we move into sort of a, a wider discussion of c- film culture, I thought it'd be worth maybe pointing out, I, I think most film buffs when we're starting off at least are, you know, we're, we're familiar with Paul Schrader as the guy who wrote Taxi Driver, who wrote Raging Bull. But I think maybe it's worth just pointing out a few of his other works that'd be worth checking out that we enjoyed. Um, Anders, was there anything you wanted to share?
2: Yeah, I mean, I've, I've only seen a handful of his films, but I would point out a film that is kind of the opposite in some ways of a uh, transcendental film in terms of its extreme use of varying styles and surrealism and truly like almost like avant-garde art is his uh, Mishima Life Four Chapters about the the, the Japanese uh, writer Mishima who like attempted a coup and killed himself in Japan. It's, uh, it's kind of a fascinating story about a fascinating figure who kind of fits into the Schrader uh, style, but through that very intense Japanese sense of honor, and uh, it's, it's, it's a very very interesting movie. Just like you know, it'll ha- it has the way it tells its story is through like each chapter is completely like different in style and uh, you know tone and things like that with the framing narrative of him taking over, and it really understands the way media can be used because Mishima like you know took wanted to take over the. You know, TV and and broadcast his uh, his uh, death and things like that. It's This idea of death as art, kind of in an interesting mm-hmm. way. But it fits kind of with like like a lot of Schrader characters. In this case, we know he's doomed because he's a historical figure and things like that. So it is definitely of all the Schrader films I've seen, the the biggest outlier in terms of its subject matter. It's very Eastern, very Japanese, uh, but it, but in some other ways, it, it fits nicely within
0: his oeuvre. Uh, <laughs> I would also recommend uh, Hardcore 1979. Oh yeah, I think it's his second film he directed, and it's really useful for people who are into Taxi Driver. It, it's very similar. Uh, both those stories are heavily drawing on John Ford's The Searchers, in terms of uh, you know trying to find the the young woman and rescue her whether or not she wants to be yeah the, de- um, the idea
2: of defilement of the uh, the way that a some sort of hostile uh, population can defile or and yeah you know, and the idea to so in the same way that Travis Bickle you know is trying to rescue uh, a prostitute played by Jodie Foster or the um, obviously the searchers Ethan Edwards getting his niece back from Comanche but in hardcore he's rescuing his daughter he's a uh, devout Dutch reformed uh, man from the Midwest who has to venture into the seedy underbelly of Hollywood and pornography, of which are interchangeable in this world, and uh, rescue his daughter from that the depravity and defilement of that culture. So it's it's literally the same kind of theme, but it's a great performance of George C. Scott. He's I mean George C. Scott's one of those guys who like the more I've uh, as a kid, I think the first film I saw with him was Dr. Strangelove, but, like, recognizing how good he is in so many other things, and that, you know, you might see, you see Patton and stuff. But, like, Hardcore, he's great. Uh, yeah. uh, Anatomy of Murder, you know. Like, George C. Scott was a real talent.
0: In and as- in aspects of Hardcore have, are similar to Taxi Driver and being sort of like the exploration of a seedy underbelly. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll also point out that the, the, the character, George C. Scott's character, is modeled after uh, Paul Schrader's father, who was a minister. Mm-hmm. the dutch reformed church um, yeah
2: yeah paul schrader and because he because he was raised in that extremely conservative calvinist uh world he never saw a movie until he was 18 years old
1: similar to werner herzog he living yeah. in the the alps yep. so the,
2: there's something about this encounter with an art form after your you know a lot of what we did our development as human beings is already finished in some ways it's yeah, very it's very no- interesting
0: this is a person who understands film so well, but they did not grow up with movies. Yeah. At all.
2: But I think it might give a different perspective in that way, too. Yeah.
0: Have
2: you got a, a film called Slave of Love? What we got is just these here, what you see.
1: It's a short film.
2: They're all about the same. Would you like something? This is the
1: movie I'm talking
2: about. I don't know what you're talking about. I just wondered if you've ever seen this film or this woman right here that girl
1: No, I never seen her. I don't know anybody.
2: Look, I'm trying to find
0: Who owns this store? I don't know. Look, man, if you're looking for somebody, maybe you ought to check the yellow pages. Um, the other one I would recommend, I just watched the other night was The Comfort of Strangers. I actually didn't really know much about this movie at all, and then I watched it. It's from 1990, and I was like, "Oh, wow, this movie's like this is a gem. This is great." Um, basically, it's a it's a Harold Pinter story. I think he did the screenplay, so Schrader didn't write this one, but it's set in Venice, and, like, uh, sort of a couple are in Venice vacationing. Uh, their relationship is not bad, but, like, you can tell there's some sort of strains in it, and then they, uh, like, they sort of, a strange couple sort of, like, latches onto them in a way that, like, if you've ever traveled la- around, sometimes you have the encounter where you, like, meet people, and they're very friendly, and you're sort of uncomfortable, clear about like okay like what are these people's intentions but this is like the kind of movie where it's like follows that into sort of possible like dark conclusions and it also has an amazing christopher Walken performance where it's like oh this is one of those like great walk-in performances where he's he's telling a, a crazy story and repeating it throughout and he, so it, it was a really good film it's it's definitely distinct um in terms of um uh themes and style from like the these later works that we're talking about of Schrader but uh the the, the cinematography and the, the way he works his camera does have some uh some similar aspects but yeah
2: Pin- I could I so. can actually see Pinter being an interesting uh oh wait you know, you know what
0: I th- think I'm messing this up I think Pinter did the screenplay I think it's Ian McEwen is the novella oh interesting I think it's like yeah no I think, yeah. no, I think it I
2: think you're right it is a McEwen because the, na- the name the name rings a bell
0: I will. Uh, I just want to correct for the record. Um, so, The Comfort of Strangers, based on the novella by Ian McEwan, screenplay by Harold Pinter. So, so two big literary talents yeah, there well, on the writing yeah. side.
2: No, I definitely need to watch that now.
0: Hello. Hello. Have you slept well?
1: Oh, wonderfully. Thank you so much. What a beautiful apartment. I'll get the glasses.
2: It belonged to my grandfather. You see that island... That's Cemetery Island. My grandfather and my father are both buried there. But Schrader's, Schrader's uh such an interesting director for me in so many ways because of the the way that his preoccupations with religion, but also like you know, violence, sex, things like that, are, like kind of echo some of the my own experiences with cinema as I like, was growing up as a yep. fairly religious kid, you know? <laughs> fairly religious. <laughs> understatement <laughs> of the year. Um, but the... You know, and then, you know, he himself to me is kind of an enigma, despite the fact that here, I'll lay my car- my cards on the table. You know, I, he's one of the few Hollywood directors that I've actually met. Weirdly, here here's one of those. I'll, I'll do a little like humble brag, you know, celebrities, you know, kind of thing. I don't, he would probably not remember me, but in 2017, well, it's worth talking about a little bit about how this like led to first reformed is that he was kind of he was asked by a bunch of film scholars at the Society for Cinema and Media Studies conference in Atlanta to come and uh, talk about transcendental style in film many years later he agreed to come and he was on that panel and I went to that panel in Atlanta and he talked about uh, you know how he might update transcendental style in film And that kind of led to him revisiting the idea of doing a second edition with a new updated intro, but it also led to him working through his script for First Reformed. Some film scholars in Toronto that I know, they invited Schrader to come to Toronto to talk about transcendental style in film. And, you know, I was able to go there and I was invite John invited me out for, for dinner and then he said, Oh, Paul's coming too and so you're like as you know, you're like, Oh my goodness, Paul Schrader's gonna have dinner. And awesome. he literally was seated right across from me. He he's he's quite a character. He's got his, you know, gravelly voice. He's, he was dressed in like cowboy kind of regalia, like a cowboy T shirt with like embroidery around it. He, you know, talked about Marty in the as if he was just Marty and he was another one of our friends and how we didn't he was, he had seen, you know, what his thoughts on silence were. Yeah, it was. It was. You know, I asked him a couple questions, and he, you know, he was like, indulged me as one of the younger scholars at the table." But he, what the main thing is, yeah. What was really special was I got to see uh, some of his set photos from First Reform on his iPhone at the table. He was like, wow. showed them to me. He's like, hey "Andrews, look, it's like I'm making this film. I'm like, oh, Ethan Hawke. He's like, oh yeah." So
0: what, year, what year? was this?
2: This is the sum, the spring before First Reform came out. Okay, so, so early twenty seventeen.
0: Twenty seventeen. Yeah, I think we saw it at TIFF.
2: Exactly. Fault so when I saw it at TIFF, wow. I was like, it was really weird because I'd already seen some of the behind-the-scenes images yeah. and stuff like that. But it's like, I guess the, with where this story might go is that no meeting someone or even like having a conversation with them doesn't necessarily give you <laughs> any great or special insight into these things. Because I felt like, on the other hand, that I kind of knew something about him because of the few films of his that I'd seen. I guess mm. it's maybe. Well, more. that's
1: the that's the aspect of art, right? Yeah. Is that art reveals that which they consciously want to reveal but mm-hmm. also a much that they don't but yeah. they accidentally do
0: can god forgive us for what we've uh, done to this world I don't know. who can know the mind of god Or we can choose
2: righteous life. Belief.
0: Forgiveness. Grace. Covers us all. In The Current, we like to open up the discussion to larger issues in cinema. Aaron was able to get to TIFF this year, so I thought, Aaron, we'd let you give a rundown of some of the highlights, and then maybe we could talk a bit about the evolution of film festivals You know, I think in the pandemic and post-pandemic world, a lot of festivals have had this combination of digital screenings alongside now the bringing back in some of the theatrical screenings. So I think that would also be something worth exploring, partly as a continuation of what we've been talking about for so many podcasts now. (laughs) Uh, The state of cinema, digital versus theatrical experience. Our hobby horse. Uh, Our hobby horse. We haven't gotten off it yet and we'll continue it today. Uh, Aaron, what did you see? Was there anything uh, that really stood out to you? What was it like to be back at the festival in person?
1: <laughs> it, it was good to be back in person, even with the somewhat alienating experience of being a little too distant from other people. And, and I don't know. I found it a little... I'm not getting, not even, I don't want to get into some of the stuff about how strange it is to have a programmer come out without a mask, but everyone in the audience is sitting 10 feet apart from each other in little pods. But... <laughs> Yeah, um, I I wasn't able to see some of the movies that I wanted to at TIFF. I couldn't get tickets to Dune. I couldn't get tickets to a Apichabang where, where Seth Akula's new film, Memoria, which is the first um, non-Thai film with yeah. Tilda Swinton, Swinton filmed in Colombia. Oh wow. So there was a few films that I couldn't see. So as I kind of do more nowadays with film festivals, it's an opportunity to watch movies by filmmakers I've never seen anything of. So what I basically did is just scrolled through tiffer which is like a an online app that condenses them into like a very you get little brief descriptions you can start if you're interested in then from those you pick and then you shows you show times and so forth and i just picked some random movies i try to pick a canadian movie always because i want to be appraised of what's happening in canada um so the movies i ended up seeing are I, i've re- reviewed all these for the site in you know in some detail but i can kind of run them down briefly here so yeah, opening well, night, that. I a friend had an extra ticket, so I went with him to this movie called "Vengeance Is Mine, All Others Pay Cash," and he's about by, the, by it's this. A um, it's a great title. It's based off a, a popular kind of comic novel, and, it's by this Indonesian new wave filmmaker called Edwin. He just has the one moniker, <sighs> nice. and it's in his video preview like kind of introduction to it he he described it as love letter to 1980s hong kong martial arts films but this is a guy known for really slow kind of mysterious art house films and it really is kind of a blend between rough and tumble 80s martial arts films and kind of disarming art house drama and frankly i don't think it really works because as a not a genre purist, but a person who appreciates genre and doesn't think that you should talk down to it. I actually think there's some expectations that come with playing in genre and you need to fulfill them. And in a martial arts film, I want the action to be good. And this film, it's not that the action's bad. It's that it's slapdash. (laughs) And then the rest is just strange. But, I mean, it's the kind of film that some people clearly would be charmed by at a festival setting. So, my fa- the favorite movie I saw at the festival is called Terrorizers, and I picked it entirely because it's the same name as Edward Young's 1986 drama, Terrorizers. It's also a tiny wa- Taiwanese movie by this filmmaker, Hoi Ding, and he ma- he's, um, I believe he's a Malaysian-born filmmaker working in Thailand and Taiwan, kind of like he splits his time between them, and I think he, he studied at um, NYU. Tisch school of the arts as many kind of international filmmakers do so the movie's very much a young homage it's very much a ensemble drama set in kind of the anonymous high-rises about the intersections of these various people's lives the thing that i found so remarkable about it and i don't even actually point this out in my review but is that it reminded me of a boss kiristami in the way that it withholds context and then dar- parcels mm-hmm. out the context in really like thrilling ways and it's weird to talk about a movie as kind of subdued quiet and just kind of straightforwardly dramatic as thrilling but it is because the movie kind of cuts between these various characters and and explores their interlocking relationships that are all centered around this kind of random act of violence in a train station and so the movie kind of reveals itself Mm. to be this almost examination of an incel and his mindset and how Mm -hmm. that affects all the people around them and so you know it's I've I've even read some reviews online. There's some people at the movie theater that I could tell were disturbed by s- something that's seemingly as sympathetic about a character like that, but I just find it like daring and interesting to watch a movie that seems to zero in so well on a um emotional understanding of of characters who are very complicated and very damaged.
0: <laughs>
2: yeah,
1: that sounds
0: that hey, sounds you, interesting.
2: Yeah, your review is good. I I read it and uh in the the whole terrorizers connection to Yang. Uh,
1: it, there's also it's there's also to similarities to Simon Lang, not in the emotional sense, but in this kind of alienation Ooh, sense. Okay, and specifically yeah. his 1994 movie Vive L'Amour, which is also kind of riffing on terrorizers. because again, it's mm-hmm. it's these movies centered around these condo buildings in Taipei. Yeah, yeah. And how omnipresent they are, and how it has this like disorienting um, isolation effect. And in, in
2: Taiwanese cinema, those are some of the biggest influences as well. So yeah. yeah. That's great. And you can
1: tell he's kind of a new generation of filmmaker, very inspired by the Taiwanese new wave. So even if he's taking certain tools that are a little more um, prestige film. And then I, so that was the best movie. And then I saw two other movies. One was a digital screening, which was Night Raiders, which is a Canadian sci-fi, speculative fiction, indigenous film. It's this, um, actually Saskatchewan filmmaker, Denise Goulet. Hmm. And it's basically an allegory for residential schools set in 20 years from now after like a you know kind of vague north american civil war in which a nation state rises up and the whole thing is that they take all children and they put them in re-education camps that the state will educate them and so it's about this woman and her daughter living in the woods daughter gets injured she has to give the daughter up because it's the only way to get medicine to save her and then joins kind of a, a terrorist band or what have you to to rescue her daughter and that it's kind of this you know dual trajectory of the the mother separated from the daughter the daughter in the camp being kind of brainwashed and it's such a potent concept for a movie it really is Mm -hmm. and because it uses the residential school stuff and it kind of centers the indigenous perspective of things it kind of envisions this idea of resistance that indigenous people are uniquely suited to leading because they've experienced this in the past that's all very interesting i found it disappointing because the world building and the kind of narrative design of it and a very young adult and i don't know how deliberate that is it might just be a nature of dystopia has been completely cannibalized by the young adult genre because it's a convenient way of of highlighting and adding kind of a dangerous allure to more Primal um, emotional relationships within mm. the world where the stakes get raised to like an extreme degree. You know whether that's Hunger mm-hmm. Games, whether that's Divergent, yeah. whether that's Maze Runner, whatever.
2: The Divergent Maze Runner. <laughs> 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 yeah.
1: Um, and then the final movie I saw was Burning, which was um, an Australian film by Eva Orner, and it's it's a documentary on the bushfires from right before COVID. And mm-hmm. I work at a company with a lot of Australians. The founders Australian, so the bushfires were like a really big deal. And it was interesting to go back and watch a very critical kind of overview documentary about this event that seemed apocalyptic in nature, and being like, "Oh my goodness, can twenty twenty get any worse?" Yeah, <laughs> and then we all learned. <laughs>
2: as, the, as the saying goes, "Hold my beer."
1: Yeah, so, so it was it was kind of a strange TIFF, but it was nice being in the theaters.
0: Yeah, because I, like I I wasn't able to get to TIFF this year. Last year, I I watched a movie at the digital TIFF they did. Um, I also watched this past year this spring i did like a hot dogs digital movie and so i've sort of been doing some of the the digital screenings in the film festivals i'm curious going forward whether these festivals are going to keep it always like a little bit of both i know on sort of like a like a rights and first screening sort of aspect i think it might be difficult for them but on the other hand it does allow them to cast like a wider net so i don't i don't know what do you think?
1: I think it's I think it's great for something like Hot Docs. It allows the the spread the there's something so fitting about watching a documentary. I don't know at home because it it, it's, it just allows yeah. you to discover it. There's no real stakes to like finding time. They're often very short. It's very easy to watch. And yeah. I think actually Hot Docs has a great app because it yeah. kind of seems to be universal across all their things. You just plug in like a code and it pulls up the movie on your Amazon lot. You know Amazon Fire Stick or your Apple TV or what have you. Well tiff has the weird thing where it's like restricted just to apple or on your computer and it's i don't like the digital experience with tiff i don't yeah, think, it I think it's like mm-hmm. a
0: sponsorship thing but i know like last year when i i had so many issues trying to get the uh the digital screen for tiff to play like on my apple tv weirdly and then hmm. like whereas like hot dogs the smaller festival documentary festival actually had like such a convenient digital screener
1: it especially frustrates me because Tiff does the Tiff dig- Bell Digital Cinema. Thing.
0: Bell, Crave. Come but on. Bell owns
1: Crave, and it's like, why don't you just do Through a Crave, Crave yeah. Premium Access what Disney Plus does, where you have to have a special code to access the movie that's on your streaming service? And you do I that know, for festivals. then you have games. all the. It's the so simple because you already there. have Crave. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah.
2: But I guess Bell's just a donor, and they're not actually officially involved in day to day.
1: But it's silly because you could. You could
2: Bell would totally do it. That, it would be a big Bell could throw to them. a
1: huge amount of money yeah. because you would convince people to sign up for crazy I've
2: appreciated in the last couple of years when I, you know, I work at the University of Waterloo. Often the beginning of the term now in September is not a great time for me to get into the city <laughs> yeah, when to get I'm away la- too. launching new classes and stuff. And obviously now with uh, the last year with COVID, but so I've appreciated even just catching a, two or three films at a, a festival um and i'm happy to like you said Aaron with what you did you know see a film from someone that i, I don't really know and that comes as a complete surprise
1: it's hard to discover movies nowadays mm-hmm. because because um theater runs are so precious it's not given to every kind of movie and because the algorithm only wants to give you more of what you've already watched on streaming services yeah. so discovery I... is so pr- so you know precious and so even though you know festivals i have mixed experiences with the movies i never really regret watching them or trying something new because that's the whole kind of beauty of a film festival is that it's giving you this genuine option of like discovery of new experiences of just like go surprise yourself and you Mm -hmm. might be very pleased with what you see
0: yeah the brow the browsing function in my brain does not work well with the way netflix and everything like that is set up right now I find it extremely difficult to just, like, look through and find something. Partly because it's trying to prompt me too much and not just sort of, like, laying it out there for me. because to, to it doesn't want you to spend time in the menu. It wants you to immediately hit play. Yeah. And so I think, I know, I, I, I do hope going forward, like, we're not going to really get many, you know, blockbuster-type, you know, like, rental stores anymore. But I don't know. I hope at some point there is a space. There is something about walking around to look for something whether it's books or movies i it's partly i grew up working all those rent uh retail and rental places but like i that's just the way my brain's wired now <laughs> like i i like looking for things physically
2: mm-hmm. also you know uh the li- public library if your library is open has a lot of dvds and movies and both it's of speak very highly resource. of canopy yeah, and canopy. Oh, canopy you find. For free. You know, check if your local library or university. So if you don't know what it
0: is, canopy a, is a, uh, a streaming platform more for art house or sort of more Classics. obscure works, and,
2: and then documentary and technical films as well. Yeah,
0: but the libraries will buy a subscription, yeah. and then you can use this the. And you get for, eight free,
1: eight free views per month.
0: Yeah, yeah. so it's really it's actually quite a wonderful thing, and I think a lot of people aren't aware of it. To be honest. Hey, a library.
1: No. We can't. That's the old nerdy Lisa. Lisa, read about my adventures in the South Seas and make me live again. We've got periodicals
0: on microfiche. Won't you join our tea party? It would be ever so...
1: Don't do it, Lisa! It's a trick! No!
0: As we talk about the challenges of sometimes finding something to watch on these streaming platforms we want to let you know that we're there for you as halloween comes up in october we'll be doing our halloween horror um so it's a great way to find you know hidden uh, gems or older horror works that you might be not familiar with do read our back catalog we have a lot of horror reviews on the site and we will be talking about a horror film for the podcast uh, next month so check us back and thanks for listening Goodbye, Mr. Bolton. I bid you farewell.